Hello and welcome to a new episode of the CG Business Advisor. I'm Scott Seidenberg. Thank you so much for downloading our podcast, for clicking and listening to it. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the CG Business Advisor wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. We're on all the major platforms. And leave us a five-star rating and give us a little review. Type up a little review as well. It helps us grow the podcast and attract more ears to uh, our products, uh, which we love to do. So thank you so much. We have an interesting topic on this episode. It's about safely selling your business. The sale of any business is very complex. It requires careful planning, many considerations, and your potential profit depends on the business structure, reasons for selling, company operations, timing, and so much more. Joining me are two great guests, Eric Lemuro from Lemuro Law, who's been on this podcast before. He's the chair of Lemuro Law's commercial and general litigation department. He's got so much courtroom experience, tried multiple jury and bench trials in several different fields of law, like corporate, trust and estates, personal injury, contract, employment, and criminal. And Eric regularly advises and represents businesses and professionals in matters involving partner member disputes, contracts, employment controversies, and regulatory violations. Also joining us is David Gates, President and Managing Director of Gates & Company, a management, consulting, and investment banking firm dedicated to helping companies profitably expand their business and realize gains on their growth initiatives. Uh, First off, Eric, let's start with you. What are some things to consider when you're preparing to sell your business? Well, I think the first thing that my clients need to do is make sure that they are ready to sell their business. A lot of times clients come to my office with an offer and they're not quite sure that they do want to sell. And that's really something that has to be decided upon at the very beginning of a transaction, because the last thing that you want to do is go through the transaction process to later discover that you don't want to sell your business. Because if you make that decision too late, you will um, potentially put yourself in legal jeopardy if the documents are signed and you're obligated to close. So assuming that the initial personal decision is made that, yes, I do want to sell my business, The next step is whether you can sell your business. And what I will have a client do is make sure that they accumulate the universe of documents available to them um, that regarding their business. And that includes the original incorporation documents, um, all leases that are in place, all contracts with vendors, all shareholder agreements, bylaws, operating agreements. Because what we have to see is one, whether uh, my client has the legal authority to sell. Sometimes a landlord in a commercial lease has the ability to object to a sale. So you gotta make sure that one, you have the um, voting authority, the legal authority to sell as it relates to uh, any other owners of the business with my client. And also that there are no third parties that can object to or prohibit a sale. Um, And that the liens are satisfied, there are no ongoing large transactions that could jeopardize a sale. Uh, Those are all things we consider. So really making sure that there is a decision to sell and that there's legal authority to sell. David, when is the right time to sell a business? Is there a right time to sell a business? Well, sometimes we hear people say when the business is worth, you know, $30 million, that's the time I want to sell. And I think, you know, we we think of uh, a handful of things. If you've got you know, one owner, they can kind of drive the bus. But if you've got two or three owners, you know, key owners in the business, 
uh, you know, they really have to be aligned on their goals and, and the, the motivation itself. They have, to, they have to definitely all be in uh, to get it done. Um, but other things we think about kind of internal and external uh, things that influence timing, I'll call it external or just kind of valuation influencers. So, you know, what's going on in the market and uh, is, are you in a business and a market that's growing and uh, in the right uh, direction? Are you in, you know, ed tech or cybersecurity, things like that versus being like in coal that maybe isn't doing too well right now. Um, the other external thing I think about is what are the financial markets like? Uh, is there fair amount of capital out there, are interest rates relatively low so that a buyer has the ability to finance the deal, right? So that's, you know, obviously an important thing. And just your internal business, you know, what's your trajectory like? Have you been growing a little bit year over year? Have your margins been strong? You're maybe a more on the manufacturing side of things. So what's the physical asset condition? You know, you've got to make sure you've got equipment that a buyer's going to want, not have to go anywhere there. And then I think the last couple of things I think about is just, you know, do you have your operations and governance lockdown internally? So we see a lot of companies that might be doing very well financially, but they're all over the place in terms of their governance, their controls. They don't have processes very well mapped out and, and optimized. And that sometimes can spill into you know, their sales and marketing activities where they don't really track um, and manage their sales and their contact management very well. So these are all, you know, kind of things to think about from a timing perspective. And, and we also tell people, you know, when you decide to sell a business, that process takes time. So you don't have to have, you know, all your ducks in a row day one, but you certainly need to understand that uh, it takes time and, and you can use that time to uh, get, your, get your ducks in a row. Eric, take us through selling a business from a legal perspective when it comes to, I guess, the, the steps or the cycle uh, of selling a business successfully. Happy to. So assuming that we get rid of step number one, which is the legal authority to sell, because oftentimes that is a roadblock. The next step is locating a buyer and negotiating. I always tell my clients that before any offer is accepted uh, or before you even enter into serious negotiations, you conduct due diligence into the buyer. And I do that with my client. Typically, that will include looking at the buyer's assets to make sure that they can actually afford the sale, looking at their litigation history to see if they have been sued before as it relates to a failed sale or potentially the theft of trade secrets, which could give us a red flag, and making sure that we think that in situations where it's an installment contract or an or an earnout contract, which are which are sale transactions that don't involve full payment at closing, that the the buyer will actually be able to service my clients' clients, will be able to operate my clients' business, and will not engage in any conduct that may jeopardize my client before my client's fully paid. So assuming the due diligence into the buyer is acceptable, and assuming we can negotiate and agree on general terms, a letter of intent is then drafted. And the letter of intent is a document that sets forth each party's intent to sell and to buy. And the general um, conditions of the proposed sale subject to a much more rigorous process and a much more detailed purchase agreement, which will happen later on. The letter of intent is usually non-binding. So until uh, the contract is actually signed. Either side can usually walk away. And the letter of intent will also say whether this, whether during the due diligence period, the buyer is allowed to market 
to other potential sellers. Usually a, a buyer, I'm sorry, the seller can market to any potential buyers. Usually a buyer does not wanna have competing offers during the due diligence phase. So they'll require the seller to not market their business during the due diligence phase. So the letter of intent then gets drafted and non-disclosure agreements are signed. And we have those signed um, when I'm representing a seller so that my seller can open their books and records to the buyer without fear that the buyer will steal the intellectual property or use any of it to help themselves during the due diligence phase and simply walk away from the transaction. Put another way, so the buyer can take my client's protected trade secrets and use them without paying for them. The NDA then gets signed, the non-disclosure agreement. Uh, there, then we enter into the due diligence phase where the buyer confirms that the seller has the clients it says it has, that it has generated the revenue and profits it says it has, that it doesn't have any liabilities or, or the liabilities that were disclosed are the only liabilities that were disclosed or that exist that the employees are happy, that the clients are happy, that there's nothing dangerous coming down the road, just basically the buyer confirming the seller's representations about its business. Once the attorneys on either side of the transaction get basically the okay from their clients, then we begin drafting the, the actual purchase agreement, the actual contract of sale. And depending upon the type of transaction, there will be more or less or different contracts involved. Once both sides are satisfied that the contracts are acceptable and that their attorneys have protected them and that they're accurate and set forth the anticipated transactions, we then proceed to the final step or the second to last step, which is a closing. At the closing, adjustments are made to the purchase price, monies change hands, ownership changes hands most times, and then we enter the final stage, which is a post-closing period. Now, in a lot of times, this post-closing period just doesn't exist, but where there are things like restrictive covenants or the full purchase price has not been paid, or maybe the seller is staying on as a, a consultant, then we enter that post closing transition phase. And that's generally the life cycle of a transaction. And each one is different. Each one has its own um, unforeseen issues and they can take a lot longer than you think or, or much less time than you think. But that's the general life cycle. David, if I want to sell then, who needs to know? Yeah, so that's that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing because you know confidentiality is really key in these deals. And then you know if, if your competition says uh, you know hears about it, they can say, oh, you don't want to talk to Acme Co. Uh, you know they're, they're we hear they're selling or you know they're they're the leadership's leaving or something like that. So the, the competition can certainly spin uh, you know the impact of it of a transaction, and you know you could have some difficult customers that might uh, use it as an excuse to switch. So. You know, and, and then also internally, you know, partners in the business can get nervous and, uh, you know, might jump, um, buyers might change their terms or things like that. So confidentiality is really key. Um, internally, we talk about at some point, a senior financial resource probably needs to know. Um, and that some some companies right off the bat, they have a good relationship with their CFO and they say, we, we're, we're going to sell and we need, you know, your help in getting all the financial uh, documents together over the next several weeks and months. Um, other people that you might get involved in the company. We've had some companies that haven't told anybody until they're signing the purchase agreement, even if they have uh, a son or daughter in the business. Sometimes they don't tell them until they've got the deal totally locked up. So that, that's part of the confidentiality. But I think externally, you really kind of early on have to get one of four people involved, whether it's, it's somebody like Gates and Company, an investment banking resource, M&A advisor, um, or your lawyer, 
or your accountant slash auditor. And then I think also on that list these days is some financial advisor, wealth advisor. So usually one of those four people, um, you know, gets contacted first by a seller and, and they help them pull their external team together. So what type of legal documentation is needed if we're talking about paperwork here? So that really all depends on the type of transaction that occurs. So there are three very general types of transactions uh, and it all depends on the negotiation, how we reach the purchase price. Usually you will have, if it's a lump sum purchase, meaning at closing, the buyer is paying 100% of the purchase price, you will have a membership purchase agreement or a stock sale agreement transferring the ownership of the asset or the stock to the buyer in full and the seller gets the full purchase price and they part ways. Great. It's a very simple transaction. It's a cash purchase more or less. The second type of transaction, which is the most common, is called the installment method. The installment method requires the buyer to, at closing, pay a down payment. And then the buyer will acquire the company without having paid the full purchase price. And then the buyer over time will pay the remainder of the purchase price. So for example, the sale is a million dollars at closing, the buyer will pay $500,000. And then at six months, another $250,000. And at 12 months, another $250,000 meeting the full purchase price. Now, in that type of a transaction, my client, the seller, needs to make sure that they are protected, that they have security, that the one buyer will pay, but two, we have remedies in case the buyer does not pay the full purchase price after it acquires the business interest. So then what we will do is we will create a pledge agreement, we will create a security agreement, and we will create a promissory note. And all of these documents serve the following purposes. A pledge agreement is when the buyer, after purchasing my client's stock, immediately pledges that stock to an escrow agent. The escrow agent will then hold that stock pursuant to the terms of a security agreement. And the remaining money that the buyer owes the seller will then be described and the payment plan set forth in the promissory note. So after the transaction closes, the buyer actually gives what it just bought away to an escrow agent and the escrow agent holds it until the promissory note has been fully satisfied. So therefore, if a buyer defaults and does not pay the full purchase price, a lot of times the seller can say to the escrow agent, I haven't been paid. And in certain circumstances, the escrow agent can give the seller back its stock, some of the stock or whatever other collateral may have been pledged. So it just doesn't have to be the stock that's pledged, but that's generally how we protect the seller in an installment case where they're not getting the full purchase price. And then in the last scenario, we will add on what's called the earnout scenario. We will add on additional documents. An earnout scenario is used when the buyer and seller are too far apart in the offer and acceptance and the purchase price, but they still want to get a deal done. In this situation, the seller will stay on most times as a consultant. And they will get paid over time, just like in the installment method, but the purchase price can fluctuate. If the business after closing does great, the purchase price will increase. The payments that are owed to the seller will increase over time. Alternatively, if the company does horrible, 
then the purchase price will decrease. And this is a way for both parties to have skin in the game. And oftentimes the seller will stay on as a consultant to ensure that their business does well after it's been sold to make sure that the purchase price does not go down and in some cases even goes up. And the buyer likes it because it makes transition from ownership smoother and it actually helps self-fund the transaction because the buyer wants the business to do great one because they've just bought it, but also because it will increase the revenue available to pay off the seller. So in that situation, we will likely add on a consultant agreement and we will likely add on the terms of the earnout schedule. So basically those are the kind of different transactions or the transaction documents that you can have. And it really all depends on the methodology of the transaction that the parties agree to. And I should mm -hmm. really add on just one final point to that, which is there are two types of transactions in terms of actual purchase of the business. So we have the lump sum fee simple payment of I'm just gonna pay a cash at closing the full purchase price. Then we have the installment method. Then we have the earnout method. But what is the buyer actually buying? They can buy one of two things. They can buy the actual ownership interest in the company, whether it be a stock if it's a C or S corp or a membership interest if it's an LLC or the buyer can buy the assets of the company, but leave the actual ownership of the company to the seller to close down later on. So it, that needs to be made clear that not all purchases are the same. And there's a lot of different methodology that, that comes into play and a lot of different strategy that comes into play because every single one will have a different tax effect and every single one will involve different risks to either party. That's interesting. David, what are some things Gates and company would recommend to prepare for the sale? Let's say if I'm thinking about doing it in, in the near future. Process mapping is one thing that we like to look at too. So we, we say uh, if you've got key things that are done in the organization um, and you're thinking about transitioning those to another buyer, you know, making sure you've got, got those mapped out one, but also optimized so that somebody comes into the business, they know that they don't have to go spend all their time you know, working on, on cleaning up the operation. So that's a big thing. Governance is a big thing. And this is where your you know legal expert can help a little bit and say, you know, here are the kind of things you ought to have in your contracts. Here's the type of assignment clauses you need to have. Um, here's something that if, if you have uh, any kind of indemnification that uh, these are the right clauses you need to have in your agreements. Uh, that's another part. Um, how you govern from a, a board of directors. If you never have board meetings and never have, uh, you know, don't even have a board of directors, sometimes that can create some issues um, in terms of just, uh, there, there's a concept I won't get into, but there's a concept of piercing the corporate veil where, uh, you know, something doesn't go right. Uh, someone could have a lawsuit going directly to uh, the owners versus going towards the corporation. So you might, you might lose some of that liability protection you have during, if you don't have some of those governance things locked up. So those are just you know some some of the key things thinking about and uh, being prepared for it. Uh, another thing that you might also think about um, to help improve valuation in the future. You mentioned your future valuation. How have valuations been impacted by the COVID nineteen pandemic? Not necessarily great um, impact from from the, the COVID uh, uh, stuff. We saw. I haven't seen a fourth quarter report, but the third quarter report I saw uh, showed that uh, you know the, the the multiples were down a little bit. Actually, the volume has kind of come back close to to pre pandemic levels, but. Uh, you know, we saw multiples down, I don't know, not, not huge, maybe 0.3, 0.4x uh, of, of what they might have been before. So they were probably in the seven range, 7x multiples of EBITDA. 
uh, and EBITDA for those who don't know it, earnings before interest, tax depreciation, and amortization. It's, it's a key metric that is used by uh, a majority of firms when they are doing the valuation. So right now we're seeing, I'd say an average around 6.7 uh, of all businesses. I mean, that's a really uh, hard thing to say all businesses because the, you know, the reality is you're gonna see a much higher valuation for a, uh, a technology firm that has very high recurring revenue, high margins and uh, you know growing revenues versus maybe something that's an old line machine company that uh, uh, hasn't been growing. So you know the, the, those multiples are, are something we look at closely and we look at the trends and we look at the industries. Um, but to say that for 2021, uh, I think things are looking fairly good. There's a lot of cash on companies' balance sheets. So, uh, you know, PE funds and, and strategic buyers have a fair amount of pinup demand and cash. And uh, I think a lot of those guys took a pause during the second and third quarter of last year. And I think now for 2021, we're going to see that multiples will uh, continue to increase. And uh, I think it will be, you know, a fairly good seller's market uh, for the foreseeable future. Final thing, David, what are some factors that Gates and company has seen that has led to successful transactions? Because ultimately, that's what we want to see. Yeah, I'd say the you know some of the key things, we, we always joke that uh, we start every conversation by saying, be prepared, and we end every conversation by saying, be prepared. <laughs> I think that's um, important for uh, successful transactions is that the business leadership, ownership um, needs to really understand the process and they need to understand kind of valuation approaches as well because i think from our perspective the hardest thing is to get a business owner that says you know i really uh, think we're worth about 35 40 million and we look at it and say god i can get it past 25 in my head and so you know having having a good expectation on valuation is really important and, and we try to help our clients with that but um, you know coming into it with a full understanding of the variables there is, is important. Also understanding who's on the other side of the table, what's, what's a buyer's motivation and what's their desires is, is helpful. The other thing I'd say um, is, is companies that use a lot of metrics is really helpful. So if they track things like, you know, uh, you know efficiency of the operation, uh, you know, proposals out versus, or proposals one versus proposals submitted, you know, all kinds of different metrics. And it could be uh, online metrics too. It could be click-throughs, it could be, uh, just using Google Analytics to, to track those kinds of, of, of traffic on your site, things like that are really helpful when we're out trying to market a business. I'd say the other thing is, is really strong sales management. You know, oftentimes we're trying to tell a story that says this company's done really well, but they're going to do it even better. And they say, well, how can you tell us they're going to do even better? And we say, well, they've got a really well-honed uh, sales management process and their pipeline opportunity methodology allows them to predict you know, three months into the future, six months into the future with high um, accuracy. Those things really help as well. Uh, being prepared for due diligence. We kind of talk about due diligence um, as a bit of a root canal. It's really uh, can get detailed and they can really look through every phase of the company. So being, being prepared for that and understanding that and, and having uh, the ability to respond quickly is, is important. Reviewed or audited financials is helpful, not always necessary, but it's, it's, it's helpful. And the one thing I would say that we have seen trip up companies a couple of times is just clear ownership of, of uh, intellectual property. So sometimes we've seen a company that might have a patent, uh, might have several patents, but one little patent out there has uh, a part ownership with some guy in, in Kentucky who uh, doesn't even know that he has to approve it. And uh, so it ends up being a little bit of the tail wagging the dog where you've got this one little small person who's not really even active in the business who has to approve uh, you know, sale of a patent. And that can screw things up. Uh, another cause, clear, clear IP ownership. Great stuff. Where can people go for more information about Gates and Company? 
Yeah, I think the easiest thing is just to go to gatesandcompany.com. That's our website, and that has links to uh, you know LinkedIn, and uh, we have an office in Munich, Germany, so we do Zing. Uh, X-I-N-G is Zing in, in Germany. They use that a lot. Uh, but I think gatesandcompany.com, it's all spelled out and all together is the easiest way to uh, track us down and uh, you know, learn a little more what we do and uh, some of our people on our team and uh, that kind of thing. David, thanks so much for joining us and really great information here. Yeah, I appreciate the time and the opportunity to be on there with you, Scott. Eric, let me wrap things up with you. What are some common pitfalls, you know, things that you see go wrong when it comes to selling your business and how we can avoid those to sell a business safely and effectively? Sure. So the biggest pitfall that I see very generally is that a party has not used professionals during the transaction. The party wanted to save money or didn't think they needed to. And now they come to me after the fact and my my ability to help them is limited depending on the circumstances because the agreement wasn't drafted by a professional and they didn't structure it the way that it should have been structured. structured or the agreement doesn't contain the language that I would include in there to protect my client. Additionally, the client has not used a tax professional and therefore they are getting less in their purchase price than they want to, or now they have liabilities they didn't know they would have because they weren't told about them in the beginning due to the lack of a professional. So the biggest one I see often is just not having a professional guide you through the process. Number two, is not doing due diligence, is not looking into the buyer and not making sure that the buyer isn't immediately going to get access to their intellectual property and then convert it or sell it off or have it shipped to three or four or five different entities so we have to go chase it. Um, I think uh, also one of the most common pitfalls I see is a seller being too anxious to close the transaction and accepting a down payment that's too small and therefore um, running a higher risk that they will either get not the full purchase price or a, a much smaller percentage of the purchase price than they should. When somebody can only pay a small down payment or is only willing to pay a small down payment, that should come with some very, very, very strong red flags. Um, and then finally, just not making sure that the agreement itself, when we're drafting it, has all the protections. Sometimes buyers just want, or sellers just want to get it done. And they say, I just want it simple. I don't want a lot of legalese. I don't want a lot of back and forth. Let's just make it simple. The problem with that is, uh, as a lawyer, I usually see when things go bad. And I know that you have to take the time when you're going through the transaction to make sure that all of those paragraphs at the end of the contract that nobody reads are in there. Because if they're not in there and something bad happens, you're really left with very, very limited options. So those are a lot of the biggest pitfalls that I see. And then, and then you know, on, on the topic of what if the transaction doesn't close? Then another pitfall I see is the seller does not go back to the buyer and say, okay, now that we're not going to go through with the transaction, you've got to give me a certification of every single person who had access to my information. And that certification has to say, I had access, I destroyed whatever I had, I deleted whatever I had, I didn't share it with any third parties, and I have not and will not use the information. If you don't do that, then basically you've given your customer lists, your financial information, your vendor list, all your valuable information to potentially a competitor, but then haven't followed up with that competitor to say, now you know you shouldn't use that and you legally can't use that. So that's really the last pitfall I see when a transaction doesn't close.
Interesting stuff. Eric, thank you so much for all this information. Uh, as always, we appreciate having you on the podcast. Why don't you just tell the audience where they can find you and more about Lemuro Law? Sure. So you can find me at www.lamurolaw.com, L-O-M-U-R-R-O-L-A-W.com. My telephone number is 732-414-0311. My email is elubin at lemurolaw.com. I am the chair of Lemura Law's general and corporate litigation departments, and we take clients of all sizes, uh, whether it be buyers, sellers, regardless of the complexity or simplicity of the transaction. And uh, you can call me directly, and I'm happy to speak with you. Eric, thanks so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. Well, there you have it. Some great information from both of our guests, Eric Lemuro from Lemuro Law, uh, who has been on this podcast before, and I'm sure we will hear him on the podcast as well. And David Gates from Gates and Company. Great information from his side of things on the management, consulting, and investment angles. For more information about selling your business safely, check out a free webinar from CG Tax Audit and Advisory. Simply go to cgteam.com slash cg-webinars, where our guest Eric Lemuro will be joined by CG's Don Cowan and Michael Demola, talking about all the crucial information you need to have when preparing to sell your business. Be sure to subscribe to the CG Business Advisor on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Leave us a five-star rating and type us up a little review as well. It helps so much, and we appreciate you so much. Stay tuned for future episodes of the CG Business Advisor, available on the 1st and 15th of every month. I'm Scott Seidenberg. For all of us here at CG Tax Audit and Advisory, stay safe. We'll talk to you next time.